Hi, I'm Dan Lucas, a creator of the website lawyerswithdepression.com. Today's guest is David Jaffe, Associate Dean for Student Affairs at American University, Washington College of Law. In his work on wellness issues among law students over the past decade, he has served on the DC Bar Lawyer Assistance Program, including its chair, and continues to serve on the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs as co-chair of the Law Student Assistance Program. David co-authored Suffering in Silence, the survey of law student well-being and the reluctance of law students to seek help for substance use and mental health concerns, and is the lead author for the law school section of The Path to Lawyer Wellbeing, Practical Recommendations for Change. So welcome, a big welcome to you, David. Thanks for joining us to discuss this critical topic of mental health and well-being uh, in law schools. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you so much in turn for all the work that you've been doing in this regard. It's really important and, it, and it's ongoing. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, I guess out of the box, it's kind of a broad question and, it, and I'd like you to go with it is in the direction you see fit. But what, I mean, here we are in 2021 now, uh, almost 2022, uh, the, the, your um, study was published, oh, now, was it four or five years ago? And uh, the task force report was maybe four years ago. But what are, where are we at now? Can you give us a sense of the context of where we've been, uh, you know, where we started with the reports and the studies and where we're at now? What are law students really caught up about? Sure. Uh, I, I think that's a great entry question, Dan. Um, I, maybe we'll keep it in, the, in a law school setting to some degree. Yes. I would venture to say prior to 2014 or so, while there were a, a smattering of law schools and deans of students and others who cared about the issue, who were doing their best to raise well-being initiatives to work with students, we were probably, in terms of looking to address this issue collectively, maybe at a D, if not an, a, you know, mm. a complete F. Um, I think in the in the ensuing years, and I, I, I think in addition to the survey on law students that you referenced, but also a parallel soft, uh, survey in the legal profession, the task force report, as you mentioned, and just so much light that has been shined on this in the last six, seven, eight years, um, focusing on the law schools, I'd say we're probably a B, maybe a B minus, hmm. uh, which is, you know, a significant change, right? If you were, if you were at a D or an F to get up to a, you know, maybe a 3.0 or somewhere around there, a little bit less, you're probably in pretty good shape. Um, and I cite that in a couple of ways. I, I draw maybe on my own experience, but I think if we had deans of students, you know, joining us here, they would nod along. Um, we were not for a number of years, maybe the best example, we were as much as told that, you know, at orientation, this was not a conversation to have, right? Our students are, should be excited about starting law school and about all the things to come. And the last thing you should be telling them is, you know, a certain percentage of you are going to be dealing with stress and some of you are going to suffer from mental health and may give way to drinking or misuse of drugs and things of that nature. It was just a real, real taboo to raise and a real no-no, although the issues were, were there. Um, that's not taking place anymore. You know, at orientation, I'd like to say almost across the board, there are well-being aspects that are being folded into uh, the presentations, whether presented by upper-level students or uh, individuals such as the Lawyer Assistance Program, as you mentioned, uh, the Counseling Center of a main campus, and or the deans of students themselves. 
the conversations are being held from the get-go. And, and that to me is a, is a real significant change, but we're also seeing it as a follow-through. Um, we're seeing more and more deans from a top-down approach uh, who want to see issues and initiatives around well-being instilled. Um, deans of students, of course, who I think have always supported this are, are you know, learning more and more, more and more as, in terms of what they can do. And then the students, when they're being received well as entering students, are looking for ways to support through peer mentoring and, and counseling, even informal counseling of that nature as upper level students. So I think it's been a, it, we're not all the way there yet. That's why probably the B, but I think a, a really significant change for the positive at, at, at this point in time. And David, I read this article you wrote. Uh, it was very, very interesting in which you address um, all the stakeholders in this, um, you know, and I think you say in this article, which I'll post down below, that we have to love our law students. And that, that really struck me uh, uh, when you said that. Why did you say that? I and mean, why did you come out and say that? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I appreciate you having seen the article and referencing it. Um, it's, it's actually, I've had an opportunity to write maybe a couple of articles and that has been my favorite piece and, mm. and maybe, the, maybe my favorite title. Um, you know, our students, Dan, are by and large, uh, and, and I always hate painting with a broad brush. Students are, are very different and very unique. But if you look at it in kind of a linear fashion, we have students who have uh, come through undergrad. Uh, for most of them, undergrad was a first departure from, uh, from being at home, uh, from being under the, you know, the, the, the oversight of their parents. Uh, for some, it's a surreal experience. It's one of experimentation, but certainly of kind of initial, kind of like growing up and experiencing some real world, but also some, some pleasantry, some vices that maybe they've not been doing prior to that point in time. And then they get to law school, and for you know, all but the very few who are going to graduate from law school into an SJD or some other program, it's finishing school, right? They're mm -hmm. heading off into the profession, which means that it's time to really start taking things seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what, what I've learned through speaking with, with, with our counselors, not about individual students because it's always confidential, but in the aggregate, is that oftentimes what the students are presenting with, which, have, which has resulted in mental health and or substance use issues, are some of these deep-seated issues that actually have very little to do with law school. Um, hmm. They're about relationships, uh, either personal relationships, uh, familial situations, maybe some trauma that occurred that was never addressed, certainly exacerbated by some of the challenges that we still need to resolve, I think, for our students in school, but really a lot of them being, wow, this is really time for me to start looking to address some of the issues that I've really not come to before. And we're the, you know, the, the, forgive the Latin, but we're the parents patriae, right? We're the ones who are kind of sitting in now that they're in law school and typically, again, away from home. And we're there to, to provide support. And I think, you know, it's not actual love, but I think if we're not on, an, on a case by case, individual by individual basis, meeting our students where they are, figuring out what the issues are, trying to help them figure out what the issues are if they're not sure, and then finding either directly or indirectly resources for them, we're not doing what we ought to be doing. We're not taking care of them that in, in, in that way, right? I mean, my mandate in student affairs or my expectation that I think our students have of us are um, I want a quality legal education and I, I love a job at the you know, time of graduation and maybe not even in that order for some, but in order to be able to accomplish those things, they have to be in good mental, quite honestly, and physical and spiritual and all those kind of healths. And if we're not playing our role of deans of students and through us, the other resources in supporting those efforts, 
we're not loving them and we're not taking care of them. And I think we're, 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 we're falling short of our responsibilities as a result. So that's really where that comes from. I'd like to follow up on the point you made that a lot of these uh, mental health issues or addiction issues perhaps have little to do with law school. I think that's a brilliant point that's missed sometimes. And my sense of it comes from my own personal experience. I was uh, a litigator and when I was 40, about 20 years ago, diagnosed with major depression. And um, I think what, what I learned was that I had several risk factors before I even stepped foot in a law school. I didn't have depression during law school or in my 20s or 30s, developed later. But do you think that when we think of uh, law school, when we think of, of the stressors that they're under because it's a competitive uh, 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 you know, environment, um, what is the interaction, if any, uh, that you see between what people bring into the profession, into law school, and then what happens to them at law school? Sure. Yeah. I, I, again, a great, a great question observation. You know, I, I try to remember to state among many things during orientation to my students, I say two things. And one of them, I kind of pretend to look around the room, make sure there are no professors in the room because I don't want them to feel like I'm offending them. And what I say to the students is, remember, this is just law school at the end of the day. Mm. And, I, and I pause and I'll repeat it. And I'll say not to minimize it, not to minimize that this will be finishing school for all but a very few of you, and that you do feel that the stakes are high, and you are paying a lot in tuition, and you do want to have a job when you graduate, and there are going to be other factors that exacerbate some of the anxiety, but there have been thousands upon thousands of law students who have passed these gates before you, mm -hmm. and, and then I usually say in all of them, none of them were as smart as this entering class, right? You have the skill set to do this. The question is, you know, where, where's the resilience going to come from? If you feel like the chips are down, where's that grit going to come from? And what are you going to do if you're not feeling 100% um, in terms of resources and being okay with seeking help? Um, and then the other thing I share with them also to your, to your question and to your point is to remind them the obvious, but restating it. You're human beings and individuals with a heart and compassion and, and talents and characteristics when you start here. And you ought to be that same human being when you graduate. You need to keep in touch with yourself while in law school to recognize that those things don't have to go away, right? The critics of law school say that it's soul sucking and that we're teaching this kind of zero sum game and you can only be successful if somebody else is losing, you know, and that it takes the heart and everything else out of it. And I don't think it needs to be that way. I, I dare say I've, I've shared with students at, at, uh, at, at orientation that there's no reason they can't be enjoying law school. Mm. I, I had the pleasure even this year of running into one student who came up to me a week after orientation and, and went beyond kind of thanking us for what we had offered, but said, you know, some of my classmates seem to be starting to stress out already. And I'm wondering if I'm wrong because I'm in a really good place and I'm really happy right now. And I know it's just the first week, but I'm really enjoying myself. I said, there's nothing wrong with that. I said, that's absolutely an appropriate approach to take. Now you are the student who is approaching me. You are going to have some stressors coming up, right? You'll have the intersection of legal writing, you know, big memo due and, 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 you know, your outlining needing to be done maybe at the same time, or at least to get started on some pressure points and things like that, but you're capable of all of these things. And if you remind yourself that you can do these things, and if you're feeling that you're slipping to seek out some support and not feel the supposed stigma that getting help is, you know, is a real issue, you're going to be okay at the end of the day. And I think the majority of the students get that, but 
we, we are taking on a large number of students every year across the country. And there are gonna be students who, back to your initial kind of you know, question, who come in with some pre kind of cursors, pre markers for some of these issues. And again, to be fair, there are exacerbators in school. There are things that we could still be doing. And there are these natural pressures of feeling a little bit competitive, wanting to have best grades, although I'm not one who preaches about grades at the end of the day, but wanting to have good grades if you're looking for a law firm or a clerkship or things like that. And just kind of feeling that natural pressure. I, I, I think there are ways to overcome it. And, um, and I think the student who is, who is seeking that assistance ends up being all the better for it. And I want the name of the article I referenced earlier was uh, the key to law student well-being. We have to love our law students, and it's a great read. And I'll post the link to it below. One of the other points you make, I, I think, is a great one. Uh, earlier, you mentioned about the the dean and, and yourself as the dean of student affairs and the law students, but we haven't talked about the faculty so much. And uh, in your article. You had a you had a, you laid it out as stakeholders in this in this problem, and each has a role to play. But you said something like, "You have to rely on the faculty to have eyes and ears, see what's going on, and be uh, and tell you or talk to you about their concerns uh, among about their students." Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit, David? Absolutely. So, so we, I, I think we as deans of students, and by extension, those who work with, with law students, kind of love and revel in, sometimes revel in this badge of honor of being at the front line for our students, particularly if we're doing a decent job and the students know that we're there. But to your observation, and what I tried to reflect on the article, we're not in the classroom. There may be a small subset of deans of students who also teach, but again, they're only going to be teaching in, you know, maybe a small class, one class. We are not seeing the students in or not seeing the students on a regular basis when, for example, they're actually not attending class. What I try to tell my faculty is that if they're not coming to, you know, your civil procedure class, it's not because they got the hang of civil procedure, but they're struggling in torts. 9.5 or more times out of 10, they're having an issue that doesn't have to do with law school that is probably forcing them to sacrifice or not attend multiple classes at one time. And that's when this kind of spiral effect starts to get into play. It starts to find its way, you know, to be affecting the student. And that's when we need the faculty to be reaching out to us. What I've said to faculty is that the, whatever the ABA standard used to be around attendance, and it's actually not really there anymore, much to my chagrin, this isn't about a metric or about a standard. It's about one of the ways you can care about your students by either noting their absence and reaching out to me or the appropriate person, and I'll, I'll, I'll circle back real quick to one of the ways we look to address that, and or being helpful in the classroom. Um, you know, the, the, I think the most thoughtful of our faculty are the ones who will actually start a class by saying, we're gonna do 30 seconds or two minutes of a breathing exercise. You know, we're just gonna breathe in and out together. Or I recognize that this week your memos are due. Assuming a faculty member knows this, your mem memos for legal writing are due. And you know, just, just take a breath and know that you're gonna be okay, but I appreciate and acknowledge that you may be feeling the additional stress you know, this particular week. Um, you know, if it's helpful and I call on you because that's something I do in you know, whatever particular class and you're you know, feeling pressed upon right now, just let me know, just take a pass and I'll be okay with it. There are ways that the faculty can engage the students to show them practically and symbolically that they appreciate where the students are kind of mental health wise and that they're with them in that regard. And also 
to remind the faculty that the students really see them as role models in this regard. And so mm. if they are leading by example, the students are gonna, are they gonna, are gonna pay attention. They're gonna sit up and listen to that and follow that lead. Um, one of the ways, just, I, I, just so, I, so, so I don't forget, I was gonna circle back. One of the, I sometimes will get faculty who will say, I'm concerned about you know, X student. Um, he missed a class or two, but not so much. But when I've called on him or called on her, they kind of, you know, they passed a bunch of times and I'm not sure if there's anything there. I don't want to highlight it too much. And that might be just a faculty member not wanting mm. to come back to them, but they also want to have a comfort level in reporting. And so we, for the last couple of years, and I quite honestly stole this from another law school, I, I borrowed from them liberally, I should say, we, we continue a practice where we do what we call random check-ins. And we do literally have a sheet of our students where we will go through the list and randomly select students and email them and say, hey, your name come up for this random check-in. It's time for you to have an appointment. And we'll have a, might be a five minute appointment, but for some it might be longer depending on what issues come up. But it actually gives us the space to fold in a student who may have been kind of singled out by a professor as having concern. And it's still, it's somewhat random, but maybe less random. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten to that student closer to the, the end of a semester as we're working our way through a class, but we can actually move them up in the queue and ensure that somebody's making a contact, but that it can still be generic, but we have a couple of, we've got a flag that we could kind of kind of tickle at the edges, if you will, or poke around a little bit and see if we can see if there's an issue that's there because we've had this knowledge provided to us by the professor. You know, and I'd like to address this point uh, to, to, turn, to turn our attention to this point uh, because based on the, the, the study uh, that you, you conducted with colleagues and based on what we know, mental health problems, addiction problems, drinking issues are, are significant amongst law students. So we know now the numbers, we know that the, the data is out there, that it's, it's a problem. Um, but what is it, what do you see, what keeps uh, law students from getting help you know i mean we talk about help seeking behavior there are plenty of people out there that have a problem that will get help but there's a significant number who won't uh won't get help what kind of factors come into play with that sure i i dan i would cite two and and i think the survey uh, that you referenced uh reflects that and, and the information's out there for those who are interested um one is the stigma uh, it's the ongoing issue about stigma. And, and, and if I may, as, a, as an important parenthetical, it's individuals like you, Dan, um, who are willing to kind of come out about these issues and say, yes, I have and or do struggle with mental health or I did struggle with substance use or other issues, but I've gotten help for it. And I'm here to tell others that, you know, you can come, you can get through this at the end of the day. Um, our law students, and again, not wanting to paint with a broad brush, but our law students by and large are type A personalities. Uh, they've accomplished everything to this point in time. Mm. They feel that they've done it largely on their own. They haven't needed assistance. But now, almost regardless of the law school they're attending, they've been skimmed from the top of undergraduate institutions across the country. And they're now feeling a little bit of that competitive burn. And then they're sitting in class and they perceive that a student who happens to get an answer right or makes a helpful comment, that that student is reflective of the entire student population or the entire you know, representation in the class and that they're the only ones who aren't getting what's going on. And for the students who feel that way, rather than kind of you know, maybe acknowledging the other student after class or maybe even kind of saying, wow, I couldn't have, you know, I could not have answered that question for the life of me and having other classmates say to them, wow, I thought I was the only one, I was feeling that way too. 
they tend to feel like they are the only ones for whom everything is slowing down. And the, and the notion of being open about it, right? I mean, you look on Facebook, what do people do on Facebook? Here's the greatest hamburger I just had. And here's the vacation I just came from. And look at what I just did this weekend. But look around for folks who are posting on Facebook, I'm having a really bad day or a bad week. You know, I'd love a virtual, you know, pat on the back or a virtual hug from somebody. People don't write that because they believe that those type of emotions are not appropriate to share. And we need to move past that. I was talking um, to a psychologist, excuse me, uh, the other day, and we we're talking about the subject of stigma as it surrounds uh, mental health and addiction issues. And she said really something quite poignant. She said, really, it's a function of two things, silence and shame. And um, there's this deep sense of shame. Uh, you know, we think of stigma just coming from the outside, but it's also an inside job where, you know, there are indicators on the outside uh, that uh, in, the, in the environment, the law school culture, that perhaps it's not okay to talk about any of those things. And uh, as a consequence, people feel ashamed of themselves. Uh, weak or not as smart or not as competitive or feel right. that they're never going to be a successful law student, have a successful legal career because they have these issues. Right. Do you, right. Do you as the dean see that sometimes in your students? I, I mean, I do think it ties back to, I mean, I'll, I'll confess that when students are, well, I'll come back to a story. I think when students are feeling that low, um, if they're willing to share that with me, it's, it's an incredible revelation on their part, which I will acknowledge them for, but I think it's typically more likely that they have already been referred to maybe a professional counselor where some of those issues are coming out. Um, but they are there. I think, you know, I would refer back to the notion of some of these deep-seated issues where some of them were these individuals, these students, not being in an environment where it was okay to seek help when their parents were struggling, you know, going through a separation or a divorce or some trauma that affected the family, and they were kind of left to the side maybe as that issue was being addressed by, by others, but kind of forgetting to embrace them and welcome them into that conversation. And so it definitely, it definitely doubles upon itself and, and kind of doubles back and presents some of these issues. I, as I was listening to you, I was remembering a story from a number of years ago. We, we, um, we had lost a student to, uh, to, well, to a drug overdose. It actually wasn't, wasn't suicide. And we had a memorial service and the parents had absolutely encouraged me to share a bit about what the student had been going through mm. in terms of uh, mental health and substance use issues. And after the reception, uh, a student came up to me and said, you know, I was, I was really moved by what you had to say and by the service and I'd love to be able to speak with you. And we weren't in a, in a private setting. So I invited the student back to, back to my office and we sat for a minute and the student started to tear up and she said, you know, I'm, it was a second year student said, I'm doing great. I've got an invitation to summer at a significant law firm. Uh, you know, this coming summer, my grades are really good. Everything's going terrifically. I said, that's wonderful. And she said, yeah. She said, and I've been smoking pot every day for the last two years. And the conversation we just had or the memorial service we just had hit me behind the eyes, you know, between the eyes, like nobody's business and I need to do something for it. And I was so moved in the first instance at her willingness to be open about what she was dealing with, but, but, but also recognize at the same time that for her and for so many students, they had to be facing this kind of issue, you know, indirectly or directly because she was struggling with the loss of a classmate, but really had to have this come so fully square for her to be able to kind of start to open up and have that conversation. And so we have to be, I mean, it ties in some of our early parts of our conversation already. 
We have to love these students. We have to be cognizant of the students and what they're going through. And we have to be there for them when they seem to be expressing some of these issues and find a way to get them all the way through the door. If it's not, you know, I, I tend to, because I'm, a, I'm not a clinician, I tend to say, I give pep talks and I will meet with a student seven days a week if that's gonna be helpful. But if they need professional services or counseling, I know what my limitations and boundaries are. I'm gonna find somebody who's gonna be able to take them, you know, to that next step and through the ultimate door that they need, you need, need to pass through to get more help. Let's widen the circle of the talk here a little bit, David. And let's let's say uh, let's talk about this this issue. Uh, do you have some advice uh, for students or administrators uh, seeking support for their well-being activities? Um, and by that, I mean you could you can give us some examples of well-being activities uh, that law schools, law students can put on, uh, and then how how they can get support uh, for those activities. Sure, sure. Um, the, you know, in terms of actual well-being activities, it's, it, it's, it's funny and timely that you ask because we are, we're at the start of a semester here. My office has been coming together a couple of times a week to figure out what could we best present to our students that will give them either directly and or indirectly, symbolically, the notion that self-care is an important thing. And what I mean by that is that we, we've been putting, so one concrete example would be mindfulness meditation sessions. I'm a big believer in it. You know, a lot of individuals are for all the reasons that, you know, those who are listening to, your, to our podcast uh, know about already, but just kind of taking a moment to be in the present and to allow some of the kind of ancillary issues that may creep back later on, but don't need to be there right at the moment. Mm. does a whole lot of good for the body. Well, I know over the years that we've hosted mindfulness meditation sessions, we get a core of six, eight, maybe 10 students who come on a regular basis. And sometimes it gets a little bit bigger. Uh, one year, our, our former dean said, well, if you want bigger numbers, why don't we announce one of the sessions in my office, meaning the dean's office? I was like, wow, yes. so thank you so much for offering it. And we had standing, well, sitting room only, if you will, for that particular session. But it's also, it's sometimes symbolic as well, which is we can't necessarily count by the actual metrics that the students aren't seeing what we're doing and maybe they're not a meditator or, you know, yesterday was uh, two days ago was National Coloring Day. And so we put out some coloring books and crayons, which might seem juvenile, although we gave a bunch of them away. But students will also see that and say, ah, the school is both reminding me and taking a step to say it's OK to take a break and to evidence a little bit of self-care. And so even if they're not coming in big numbers, they may be doing for themselves. Indeed, we ought to be encouraging them to say, if you're not a meditator, if you're not a person who does yoga, if you're not somebody who runs or walks or writes in a journal or wants to prepare a good, healthy meal, find the thing that is working for you and just remember to do it on a regular basis. And so, you know, rather than I'm not, I'm not punting on some of the concrete activities, Dan, I would simply say that sometimes you just do what feels right. I mean, you certainly can survey students and we've sought to do that. Um, there was an event that we were thinking about doing, and I had a couple of students who thought it wasn't the right message. And I said, okay, let's do something in a different direction. You always want the student input, but you also have to respect or appreciate that you can do surveys and get all the responses you want in the world, but students may or may not, you know, the response may not be mean that they're actually going to participate. And so, you know, meditation, yoga, um, space for, you know, walks around the walks around the block or around the campus for staff, I would say, and for faculty. 
walking meetings on occasion. So if you, you know, if you're talking about meeting with a student and you're comfortable doing a walking, certainly with a colleague, get up and get out of doors in a nicer day and have that meeting walking. Um, standing up for meetings and doing things like that is also a self-care moment. I mean, the list can really go on and on. We've done a couple of, um, of like food demo sessions where we invite a faculty member to both present how to prepare food uh, on, on an economic budget, but also to do it in a healthy way. So you really can touch a number of the different, the mental, the physical, the spiritual, you know, the occupational, and, and really the, the, the sky should be the limit. Um, you would ask the question also about one, what, I, I don't know if you were meaning this directly, but sometimes resources become an issue, right? A lot of law schools right now are kind of working through budget challenges because we were, um, well, we, we had lost, you know, uh, uh, revenue and, and tuition, mm -hmm. right? revenue largely over the last year and a half or so. I have been very um, uh, un unashamedly have reached out to law firms and, and folks where I know people or law firms where I know that they're doing some good and have asked them if they're willing to sponsor and support efforts of what we're doing. And that will, you know, we will gin up a nice poster and put it in front of the event and make sure that the students know that this is a law firm that cares about the students' well-being and that they've actually put their money where their mouth is to help us. Um, and in fact, with the uh, 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 national and, and annual law student well-being day coming up uh, early next month, October 10th to the date. This is a great opportunity for those who are listening to think about, you know, reaching out locally, whether it's law firms, even to alumni. I think it's a great development opportunity to reach out to an alumni relations office and say, hey, you know, if you care about these issues and you told us that you have, could you help us by supporting X and Y and Z to host a, an oatmeal breakfast or a giveaway a fruit breakfast or some other thing where your name will be behind it? but we can actually supplement uh, what we're doing by, by adding another self-care self initiative for our students and our, and, our, and our staff and our faculty for the entire community. Two things that you and I were talking about, one of which uh, I'll say here, and I wanna get your reaction. Uh, one of which is actually establishing or creating a course, a curriculum at a law school on mental health and well-being for law students. Uh, that's something uh, I know some law schools around the country are doing. It's a proposal I made to our dean for, for myself to teach one. And the second is, because um, you, you know, I want to touch upon this issue of what can bar associations do, law firms do, alumni uh, do. And I think it's to support the efforts of the, the law schools in, in this, because uh, I have often said, and I, I, I've said to the task force and uh, national and our New York State task force, that we tend to think of uh, law students, lawyers, and, and judges in three silos, you know, law student well-being, and then, you know, lawyer well-being, and then judge well-being. Well, they're all part uh, holistically of the same thing. And I, I said, it would be amazing if we had like a town hall meeting, uh, you know, in which all the people came together, law students, lawyers, and judges, and address this as a common problem uh, that we're all in this together and we all support one another. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that's a powerful statement. And I think, you know, local leaders, firms can do that. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I think the other thing that I think is true uh, is for more law schools to think very seriously about a curriculum uh, a course on this topic, given it's uh, given how essential it is, not only to we talk about health and well-being, but the national task force talked about competency. You can't be a competent lawyer 
a successful law student if you're struggling with mental health or addiction problems. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so mm -hmm. yeah, some, some great points, Dan. So um, one of the things you would ask me off the top, what are we seeing in terms of change and, 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 you know, maybe reflecting on that is, is, is change moving in a positive direction, which I believe yes. that it is. We have seen uh, an increase, a creation, I think, because I don't think many existed and now an increase in the number of states that are, uh, are um, striking or composing wellness committees at the state level. And, and I think a lot of them are, uh, formed or comprised by their state Supreme Court, which kind of makes sense. But I think that there has been representation in those committees almost across the board. And I think they're looking at some of the very issues that you're referencing. What can we be doing across the board to ensure the, 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 the future and the consistent well-being of all the constituents? I will, you know, my, 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 my selfish approach continues to be in the law student community, of course. And my argument has always been that if we can't produce healthy law students, all we're doing is pushing them out into the profession where they haven't gotten help in law school. And so that's just, you know, it's like the game of whack-a-mole. It just pops itself back up. And of course, in the profession, that means both the, the, the private public sector and the judiciary as well. So I tend to look at it a linear, but it's definitely kind of an all-in type of, of, uh, of proposal that, that needs to take place. I think on the curriculum, Dan, it's an excellent example of what we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago of something that is both practical and symbolic. Um, mm. And what I mean by that is that the curriculum itself, it's, if it's well-developed, is going to benefit the students who are enrolled um, because of just the very, the very nature of, you know, mental health uh, and issues surrounding it, substance use and everything else have to, having to have to be presented as a, as a co-curricular issue. I mean, that's the very essence of, of teaching a course. I mean, it's curricular in that essence, but the, but the, the, uh, the vices, the side effects and adverse effects that students are having can be brought to bear by teaching the course. The courses I think are oftentimes, first of all, sold out or, or full in terms hmm. of teaching capacity, which is great. I think oftentimes they are classes that are being taught to kind of preach to the choir, choir if you will. So there's students who are probably yes. oftentimes already in pretty good shape and mindful of their self care so not necessarily getting to the audience of the students who maybe could benefit from it, but by extension, and this is what I meant by alluding to our conversation earlier, students are seeing that it's part of the curriculum, and that is a clear reflection that the faculty, that the dean, somebody has approved this as a course that is worthy of receiving credits or pass-fail, whatever it might be, but certainly ultimately credits towards graduation, and is something that is meaningful and important for the students to take advantage of. So there's that kind of practical and, uh, and symbolic kind of rearing its head again in a good way. Well, uh, we have time for one more question. I, I think I could talk to you for hours on this topic. Uh, it's such an important topic, the, not only the physical well-being, but the mental health well-being of our law students who are the future of our, the, our profession. And what obligations, uh, uh, moral obligations, I would say, do we as uh, uh, law educators, uh, institutions have to, uh, you know, what obligations do we have to uh, give them the skills, give them the information, give them the support uh, so their mental health does not become a, an impediment to them in law school. It does not cause suffering. It does not cause later problems later in their legal careers. 
and you talked about, uh, you know, leading by example. So I'd like to close with this question, which uh, I think is a good one about staff practicing self-care, uh, yeah. not only leading by example, but because you have to, uh, yeah. what, what are your thoughts about that, David? Yeah, I, I it's a, it's a, once again, I know I've said a couple of times, Dan, but a great observation and question. Um, we are, I would say, even now, as we're recording this podcast and as we have staff at law schools across the country, I can't even say, as you know, coming out of the COVID issue, but really dealing with it as most many, if not most law schools have come back to this in-person setting after being remote for a year and a half. And that has been draining on everybody. I mean, we're thrilled to have the students back in person. Most of the students are really excited to be back in person, albeit with a bit of trepidation. You know, is there another shoe that's going to drop around a variant or something else with the pandemic? But actually seeing one another in person again for the first time has meant a lot. But it also has come with a lot of this baggage of, you know, how long are we going to be in person? And, you know, masking in the classrooms and masking in the hallways kind of maybe depersonalizing a little bit, and I support it, don't get me wrong, but depersonalizing a little bit of the, you know, the handshaking and the hugging and the being in close proximation to each other. And all of those anxieties that the students are having are continuing to come to those student-facing staff. And if they're not directly student-facing, those staff who are supporting the efforts of students-facing staff, we need to remind ourselves on a regular basis that self-care is important. I had this conversation with a couple of colleagues of mine just a week ago, and I pointed out one example that I wasn't doing and I knew my colleagues weren't doing either, which is, listen, we are all in the building. In our case, our, our current hybrid policy is three days, at least three days in the building and then two days remote each week. We are all in the building, you know, 60% of the time each week. We're not taking lunch away from our desk. Mm. I mean, this is something that was pre-COVID, but maybe even more important now, and we're not taking that hour for ourselves. I said, and I've been doing this the first two weeks myself. I've been grabbing, either bringing lunch in and sitting at a, at a table in, in, in my office or going out to the dining room, bringing something back. We need to stop that. And that very day, the three of us who were, four of us who were on the call kind of agreed that we were going to meet in, you know, one of the smaller dining rooms. And we did so. And we mm. just sat and we talked for an hour and just reminded ourselves indirectly and directly that we needed to be breathing and taking care of ourselves. So you're absolutely right. We're, we're need to, we need to be leading by example, by being able to smile when we're seeing the students, making sure we're seeing the students, of course. And that means walking the hallways a little bit, even masked and, you know, checking with students and just smiling through the mask, letting, letting them see the, you know, kind of the, the edges of our eyes going up because we're smiling and they can kind of, you know, see the grin coming through. Um, but also ensure, you know, again, that we are, we're doing the things that we're preaching to them, that we're taking care of ourselves at the same time, or we're not going to be able to present that face at all. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that point up. Yeah, that's a that's a great answer, David, and uh, I appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately, it's all the time we have. Uh, my thanks to David Jaffe, Dean of Student Affairs at American University, Washington College of Law. I'm Dan Lukasik. Join me next time for another interesting interview on mental health in the legal profession.